0: Our call to worship this morning is from Psalm 145, beginning in verse 1. I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. Beloved congregation of the Lord, I bid you grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray together. Our Heavenly Father, you are indeed very great, and your ways are unsearchable. We've gathered together today in your presence at your command to extol and bless your great name, to offer you our songs of praise and thanksgiving, to offer up our tithes and offerings, to listen to your word with believing hearts, and to present our lives in service to you. Grant that we do all of this our service of worship in sincerity and truth, and may our minds be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins we have by the saving work of your Son, Jesus Christ, and for the new life we have by your Holy Spirit. Thank you for your church, which is your family and our family, and for making us citizens of your heavenly kingdom. Renew us in a right spirit today, Father, by the gracious work of your Spirit, and open our minds and hearts to your word. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. We've come this morning to the final two articles of the Apostles' Creed, where we confess our belief in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting in this These two articles, of course, bring sublime comfort to us, sublime gospel comfort, because they answer the question that has troubled men and women ever since the fall of Adam, namely, what happens after we pass from this life? The first comfort is that our souls are taken immediately to Christ in heaven. As Jesus told the thief on the cross, today, today you will be with me in paradise. The Apostle Paul taught this as well in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And Stephen, as he was martyred, testified to this same reality. As he prepared to die, he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So this is a great encouragement to know, beloved, that for those who love God, death is a passing from this life into the very presence of our Savior. As believers, we have no reason to fear the end of our physical life, nor the grave, for the God who cannot lie assures us that we will immediately, consciously, and forever enter into his presence. The second great comfort that we receive from this catechism reading this morning is that this my body, raised by the power of Christ, shall be reunited with my soul and made like the glorious body of Christ. The Bible teaches that there is coming a great and glorious day, the last day of this age, when all the dead bodies of all the saints from every age will be resurrected, brought back to physical life, never to die again. This, of course, is the great hope of the Christian faith, that just as Jesus is risen, so shall we.
1: Our great hope
0: is not that we will die and go to heaven. That's just the beginning. The great hope of the Christian is that we will die, go to be with the Lord, and be physically resurrected on the last day. Certainly, there is great mystery in this confession. The Bible says that the new body we receive will correspond to the body we have now, just like a new stalk of wheat that comes out of the ground after the seed has been planted, just as Christ Jesus himself had a physical body that was recognizable, that even carried the scars of his suffering. So in one sense it will be the same body, but in another sense it will be radically different. A body of glory, a body of immortality that will never suffer or die again. A body made like unto the glorious body of Christ. And so we confess that our our almighty God will raise our dead bodies even though we don't understand exactly how we will do it, nor exactly what our new bodies will be like. And we base this comfort on three great certainties. Number one, God promises to do it, and that's enough. But number two, our souls and our bodies will be reunited, never to be separated again. And number three, our new bodies and now perfected souls will be glorious like the heavenly body of Christ after his resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15:45 and following gives us these words of hope and comfort. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam Christ became a living spirit, a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust, the second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, Christ Jesus our Lord. And finally, another great comfort is to know that we will enter into life everlasting now, we know the Bible speaks over and over again about this concept of eternal life. In the Gospel of John alone, we read that, those words 28 times. 28 times eternal life is referenced just in John. And it's a life that has begun even now. As Jesus taught in John 17, verse 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. To personally know the Father and the Son is eternal life and is the blessing and the comfort and the hope of every born-again Christian. This is the joy we now experience in our hearts, the beginning of our eternal joy. Eternal life is not something we have to wait for until after we die. It is something we possess right now, right now in this world because we've entered into fellowship with God through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. As we read in John 3.36, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And also in 1 John 5.13, These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have have present possession eternal life. Eternal life is not pie-in-the-sky hopefulness, It is present reality for the Christian and the consummated experience of this glorious and joyful life with perfected souls in perfect, resurrected physical bodies in the presence of God. This is our wonderful future. This is the Christian hope because almighty God has promised it will come. Hallelujah. Let us bow our heads for prayer. Our great and heavenly Father, we praise you today for the wonderful mercy you've shown us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the hope of resurrection from the dead on the last day and the gift of eternal life that we enjoy even now, knowing you personally. We're totally dependent upon you, Father, not only to save us from our sins, but also to preserve us in our Christian faith so that we may successfully continue on this pilgrim Pilgrim, journey that we are on and overcome the world and the spirits of Antichrist, which are everywhere. We thank you for opening our eyes to see your glory, for causing us to be born again by your Holy Spirit, and for granting us forgiveness of our sins because of Christ's death and his resurrection on our behalf. Thank you for the promise of John 5:24 that the one who hears Christ's word, and believes in the one who sent him, has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. What great comfort it is to know, Father, that through faith in Christ we will no longer be judged and that we have eternal life even now. We rejoice in your faithfulness to us and in the security of knowing we can stand confidently before you by grace despite our many transgressions transgressions, that on the day of judgment, we will hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, not because of our deeds, but because of what Christ has accomplished in us. Deliver us, Father, from the power of our sins. Help us to number our days. Help us to make our lives count for Christ. Grant us grace that we might love others without pretense, but love others in sincerity and truth. Fill us with wisdom from above. Help us to wage war against sin. Help us to have as our goal your glory and our constant gratitude. Help us to remember that we are witnesses for Christ in this evil age. That we are accountable to demonstrate by our actions and by our words, and yes, our thoughts as well, that we are a holy people set apart for you a people who understand that we are not our own, but belong to you, body and soul, who trust in Jesus to save us by his precious blood and to deliver us from all the power of the devil and to preserve us in faith to eternal life. Help us to be bold in our confession of faith. Grant grace and strength to the infirm, to the sick. Help our brother Lee in his fight to regain his health and strength we pray that you would heal him completely. Bless the mission churches of the RCUS, especially our mission work in Omaha and also the one in Gallatin Valley, Montana. Pray, Lord, that these saints would be encouraged and blessed and strengthened and that their numbers would grow. Bless the work of Middle Eastern Reform Fellowship, Reform Faith and Life, Westminster Biblical Missions, and the wonderful work they do to advance the gospel of our Savior in various foreign lands. Bless the labors of our sister churches in Kenya and Congo and the Philippines, that they would grow strong in sound doctrine and the grace and mercy found in Christ. Bless the ministry of Heidelberg Theological Seminary, City Seminary, New Geneva Seminary and Greenville Seminary. Bless those who govern and judge in our land, that they would come to faith in Christ, that they would learn to carry out their work in the fear of and wisdom of the Lord, and not the fear of men. We thank you for the St. John's Sunday School teachers, and we pray for them and for their students and for the officers of this church, the elders and deacons, that you would be very merciful to them and assist them greatly in their work of service for you. Help the covenant children of St. John's and the young communicants to grow into mature and faithful, lifelong Christians who have their lives grounded in the scriptures, who are committed to being faithful witnesses in this dark age, who are dedicated to your service, and who trust in Christ alone to save them. And we ask for Christ's sake that he would continue to build this church and bring them a new pastor and new families. And we ask, too, that you would graciously provide pastors for the RCS congregations in Mitchell, South Dakota, Minot, North Dakota, Garner, Iowa, and Greeley, Colorado. Forgive us our sins, Father, even as we forgive those who sin against us. Fill us with true love that we might be alert to the needs of others. And now as we turn to the Scriptures, anoint our minds by your Holy Spirit so that we might understand your words and be established in what we learn. Help us to return to you this day the glory and honor that you alone deserve. And we ask these things in the name of our precious Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And now reading from the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 23 beginning in verse 1. Let us hear now the word of our God. Jeremiah 23, verse 1. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore thus says the Lord God of Israel against the shepherds who feed my people. You have scattered my flock, driven them away, and not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for the evil of your doings, says the Lord. But I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries where I have driven them, And bring them back to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise up to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper, and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name, by which he will be called, The Lord our Righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that they shall no longer say, As the Lord lives, who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the descendants of the house of Israel from the north country, and from all the countries where I had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Today's sermon reading is Romans 3, beginning in verse 9, all the way through verse 26. Beloved congregation, let us lift up our hearts to heaven, and ask the Lord's blessing on all of us, as his word is read together in our presence. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Amen and Amen. Well, beloved of the Lord Jesus Christ, we've come this morning to Paul's great letter to the Romans, a letter in which the Apostle spends a great deal of effort explaining the good news of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Yet as a necessary preparation for this task, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was led first to underscore the terrible, terrifying, and inescapable truth about man's condition. This is why he spends much of the first three chapters explaining the problem in such dire terms. Paul understood the need to afflict his readers who were under the wrath of God and to warn them of the severe judgment that they were facing because so many of them were captivated by a false sense of assurance that all was right with them and God. Paul knew well from personal experience how easily sinners are able to convince themselves that everything will be fine with them on the day of judgment because they did their best, because they did certain good deeds, because they observed certain religious rules, and ultimately because they think that despite their errors, They're good people after all. And so that plague, that plague of self-assurance, the false sense of security that deceives the hearts of untold millions of ungodly and unrighteous persons, had to be dealt with in a decisive way, in a way with finality, before such folk would be prepared to even grasp the good news about Christ. And so Paul spends a considerable amount of time, much of the first three chapters again, laboring relentlessly to convince his readers that everybody, everybody, not just the worst sinners, not just some people, not even just a majority of people, but everybody, every single person born under the sun, all men without exception, have absolutely no hope of escaping the wrath of God on their own. That everybody who does not receive the message that he is bringing, a message from heaven, is in fact under the condemnation of God even now and is not a trace of hope of escaping hell without it. And this is why beginning in verse 18 of Romans chapter 1 all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul has set before us the relentlessly bleak proposition that everyone knows God, that everyone knows certain facts about God and understands in his heart that He is the Creator. And yet, despite knowing all these things, no one, not one, on his own, chooses to worship God as God has a right to expect, nor to give Him thanks, nor to love Him as they should, nor to give Him the glory He deserves. Whether we've heard of the Ten Commandments or not, we have all turned aside. We have together become unprofitable. There is none of us who does good, no, not one. Our throats are an open tomb. With our tongues we have practiced deceit. The poison of snakes is under our lips. Our mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Our feet are swift to shed blood. Our feet are swift to attack our neighbors, to hate them. In our hearts, destruction and misery are in our ways. In the way of peace, we have not known. There is no fear of God before our eyes. This is the horrific truth about man's condition. This is the horrific truth about us, about everyone that we like to shy away from. That we are ungodly, that we are unrighteous, that we are villains on the stage of human history sinning continuously against God and our neighbor. This is the truth about all of us. This is the truth about all of mankind who is under God's wrath. And this is why, apart from the protection that only God can afford, all of us are under His judgment. All of us are teetering toward the edge of an eternal abyss because we do not see God, nor do we return thanks to Him, nor do we give him the glory that he alone deserves. Beloved, this is why God's wrath is revealed from heaven against man's unrighteousness and ungodliness, because man on his own suppresses that truth, suppresses that he knows what he knows about God, and lives instead to serve himself, lives instead to serve his own sinful, selfish desires. This is where Paul has taken us. This is to the end of ourselves. To the removal of all false hopes about ourselves that we like to entertain. To the destruction of all fanciful wishes that we're really good people after all. Paul has brought us to the end of ourselves. And so the question is, have you heard this message? Have you understood this message? There is no one who is righteous, no, not one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks after God. This is what the Bible teaches. Paul has concluded his argument by quoting from the Bible a series of verses so that we can hear for ourselves God's own verdict in his own words that he has declared against us, that we are lost, that we are ruined that we are totally depraved, that we are undone, that we have no hope in ourselves. Positive thinking be damned, false hopes be cursed, God out of love and concern out of a sincere desire to prepare us for the good news has now brought us to the end of ourselves via the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through Paul the Apostle. And if you do not agree with God's verdict against you, if you do not accept the awful truth about yourself, if you refuse to comprehend what you are in yourself, and that on your own you have absolutely nothing to look forward to after this life, except in eternity under the fury of God's wrath, then you are not ready to continue reading. But if you believe Paul's message, if you agree with the verdict God Himself has declared against you in His Word, if you agree with the sentence He has pronounced because of your sins, then finally, and only then, are you ready to hear what the Christian message is all about. You are finally prepared to ask the great question, How can I, a lost, ungodly, and unrighteous person, who has sinned against God my whole life long in thought, word, and deed, how can I draw near to that God who judges sinners and be at peace? How is that even possible? You see, this is the great question we are considering this morning, beloved. A question that at some time or other every person must answer, and there is no evading the question. Because the Bible says a day of reckoning is coming for everyone. A day where we shall all appear before the judgment seat of God. So each of us must face up to this matter. How can I, a sinful, ungodly, unrighteous person, be at peace with a perfectly holy God? Now the way religious people have tried to answer this question, and I'm referring to those who do not use the Bible as their guide, the way such people have typically tried to answer this question about how to have peace with God has left them very far from the mark. Because without the teaching of Scripture, man does not understand the gravity of the question he is asking, regardless of how eager he may be to answer it. He does not properly discern the malignant and pervasive character of the evil that he believes to be a barrier between himself and God. He does not perceive the sinfulness of his sin. Man without the Bible tends to think of himself as a sincere and basically decent person, a person with good intentions, who sometimes makes foolish mistakes. He compares himself with others who are far worse than he, and he concludes that he is not nearly as bad as they are. And so he tries to answer the question without really understanding the question. He is ignorant of his true condition. He does not understand that in the sight of God he is a rebel, wicked and perverse, prone by nature to hate God, and so depraved that he is completely incapable of any good thing. Religious man has dreamed up many elaborate ways to answer the question of how we can have peace with God, yet his answers are completely unsatisfactory, because religious man's perception of his personal guilt is too superficial. His views of himself are far too high. His views of God and his supreme holiness are far too low. He does not understand the infinite majesty of God, the supreme holiness. And because he does not fear God as he should, he is far too casual in the way he thinks about God and in the way that he seeks to approach Him. But as we know, beloved, the supremely holy God is also a God of great mercy. And in His mercy, He has answered this great question for us. He alone, understanding the question much better than any of us do, He alone has answered the question in a way that none of us Good, how we may have peace with him. He did not leave us groping in the dark, searching blindly for a solution. He has answered the question with finality and has now announced it from heaven to all mankind in a way that satisfies all the difficulties of the question. God himself has made it possible for ungodly and unrighteous man to be in a relationship of peace with him. And this is the amazing answer solemnly proclaimed by the Apostle Paul in this morning scripture text, for in Romans three twenty one through twenty six the answer to the most important question we can ask the question of how sinful people like us may be at peace with a supremely holy God is provided with absolute clarity sinful man enters into peace with God only through faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. But now the righteousness of God, reading from the New King James here, now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Thus begins what Leon Morris suggested may be the the most important paragraph ever written by man. Romans 3.21-26 reads like a solemn proclamation, and well it should, because it proclaims that by a decisive, once for all, redemption of God, the crucifixion, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus Christ, God has provided the way, the only way, for sinful man to be declared righteous, to be at peace with him. And this passage explains to us the glory of Christ's saving work on our behalf, a saving work that fully accounts for God's righteousness and for man's awful sinfulness, a saving work that makes the two parties to be at peace. And we're going to consider this awesome paragraph of Scripture in the remainder of our time here this morning. But now, those words of comfort, but now, the saving righteousness of God, righteousness that is apart from keeping the law, righteousness which was witnessed in the Old Testament writings, God has revealed now to man how man may dwell in peace and favor with Him. By granting his own righteousness to man through faith. The God who is himself perfectly righteous now declares sinners to be righteous in his sight. Namely those sinners who have faith in Christ Jesus. To those who believe, God gives his righteousness. And judges those believers to be righteous in his sight. This righteousness is not earned. It is not something sinners can buy. It is not bestowed upon us because we do good works. Nor can we gain it by obeying the Ten Commandments, or by reciting a creed, or by memorizing a catechism, or even by joining a Reformed church. It is given to us freely. The peace that has been established between God and sinners is apart from the law and apart from our own human efforts. We are justified freely by God's grace. Precious, wonderful, comforting, hopeful truth, a healing balm for souls that are miserable in their sin. The righteousness of God, the righteousness that makes ungodly sinners to be at peace with Him, comes to us through believing, through faith, We are justified by faith, as Paul concludes in Romans 5, verse 1. And the consequence of being justified by faith is that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But let us speak just briefly then, first, about what exactly it means to be justified. What is called to mind when we see this term justified is a court of law. We are standing in a courtroom before God, the holy and righteous judge. The judge that must either be our justifier or our condemner. It is his office to condemn. It is his office to justify. The opposite of justify is condemnation. We stand before him as guilty sinners. We know this all too well. The law of God has now exposed our guilt and our misery And because we are against God, there is no choice. God must be against us. It cannot be any other way. We cannot be right with Him because we are all wrong with Him. And we are all wrong with Him because we have all sinned against Him and fallen short of His glory. We have all missed the mark, terribly missed the mark. And so all of us are in the courtroom. We are standing before God, the Holy Judge, We are waiting for him to pronounce sentence and fully aware that every last one of us deserves condemnation and damnation. We are like the man who beat his breast as the Pharisee trumpeted his own righteousness. We are like the man who beat his breast and could not even look up because he was so full of feelings of condemnation. That is the scene that our scripture text calls us calls to mind. That is what Paul has labored for two and a half chapters for us to understand. Yet surprisingly, Paul tells us that God the judge has now rendered his judgment and has declared that we are justified the ones who believe in Jesus. This is marvelous news. This is incredible news. But how can this be? How can God... Be a righteous and holy judge, and yet declare guilty sinners to be just in His sight. Does God simply wink at our sins? Does God tell us it's okay? I forgive you, like a daughtering grandfather with his grandson. I've been spending time with my grandson this week, and I've learned what it means to to be like that toward him. But that's not the way God is. That's not the way God judges. God is merciful. God is loving. But he is likewise just, and his justice requires that sin committed against his majesty be punished with extreme, that is, with everlasting punishment, both of body and soul. So how is it that God, a perfectly righteous judge, is able to declare guilty, hell-deserving sinners to be just in his sight? There it is, right there in black and white. We have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, verse 23 but are now said to be justified. Verse 24. How can this be true? Is that what Paul means? That is exactly what he means. But how? Justice must be satisfied. God cannot simply dismiss our sins with a wink and a nod, or He would not be a righteous judge. When a sinner is pardoned and declared righteous, it is not because God has exercised leniency. It is not because He has decided to exercise clemency. It is not because we made an effort to repent. It is not because we have promised to live for him. Surely those things will happen in a saved person, but they are not the ground. they are not the cause of what why God has justified us. Again, we must actually be righteous, in order to be declared righteous, to receive God's judgment that we are justified. Beloved, do you hear what we're saying here? Do you understand this? You must actually be righteous in the sight of God to be declared righteous, to receive God's judgment that you are justified. It's not that most of your sins are washed away. All of your sins must be washed away. How can you attain to such a standard? Well, according to God's Word, over and over again, in the whole counsel of God, there is one way, and one way only, that that can happen, according to God, who is the holy and just judge. And that is by personal faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. By having a sure knowledge, whereby I hold for truth all that is that God has revealed to us in His Word, and also a hearty trust which the Holy Spirit works in me by the Gospel, that not only to others, but to me also, forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation are freely given by God, merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. When you appear before God, the righteous and holy judge, there is a ledger book that must be accounted for, A ledger book that details all the debts that you owe to God. Every stray word you've ever spoken against Him must be accounted for. Every complaint uttered against His gracious providence. Every unthankful word or attitude you've ever expressed. Every lie you have ever told. Every outburst of unrighteous anger. Every disrespect of your parents. Every evil thought you have ever entertained every lack of charity you have shown to your neighbor, every sin of omission, every sin of commission, all of it, all of it must be accounted for. It is recorded in the ledger book of your life. It is recorded in exacting detail. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Ecclesiastes 12:14. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. Matthew 12, verse 36. This is an unimaginable debt that we owe to God because of our sins. Again, how will we pay it? How will we be able to stand on that great day and escape condemnation? Well, God knows full well we cannot pay it. No one can pay it. And so he alone has provided a substitute, Jesus Christ, to pay the debt on our behalf. And by dying on the cross, by suffering for our sake, Jesus has indeed paid that debt in full. The debt owed for every sin we have ever committed, and every sin that we ever will commit, is now paid in full. It is finished, as he declared. Our guilt before a perfectly holy and just God because of sin has been removed from the ledger book. We are paid up forever. Jesus has died for our sins. But that is only part of what it means to be justified. As wonderful and encouraging as it is to be pardoned by God, to be pardoned alone does not make us righteous. Our deaths have been wiped off the ledger book. That is true. But instead of those debts, we need assets. We need positive acts of obedience to be added to the ledger book to receive the sentence of justified. To be pardoned means we're no longer guilty. But to be justified means that we are obedient and righteous. And this is the great news. This is the incredible news, again, announced to us in this passage that the very righteousness of God has been credited to us to those who believe in Christ, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ to all and on all who believe. The righteousness that we ungodly and unrighteous, sinful people need to be declared just in the sight of a holy God and to be at peace with Him forever is given to every single person who believes to those who have faith in Jesus by faith in Jesus peace with God has been established because Jesus has wiped out our crushing load of debt he has silenced the laws loud thunder he has transferred his assets his obedience to us all that we owed has been taken away all that Christ has merited by his perfect life of obedience has been put in its place through our union with Him. We are now righteous in God's judgment and not because of our righteousness. We are righteous in Him. And beloved, as you know, this is so critical for us to know, isn't it? That we are justified, that we are now declared righteous in Jesus by faith. You know, one reason, just a very simple reason why we must know this and understand this, It's a pride killer. It destroys our pride. It levels the field. There is no one who can boast above anyone else in this life or the next. We have all been undone by our sin, but we are now all made right by God himself. As you know, this was one of the great clarion calls of the Reformation, that Christians are justified, that they are declared righteous in God's sight through faith in Christ, And rightly so, because as Paul makes clear in this book of Romans, justification by faith is the heart and soul of the Christian gospel. It is the heart and soul of what it means to be a Christian. God has entered into a new relationship with his people, a relationship grounded on this fact that Jesus has taken away our sins and given his righteousness to us. God has justified us, declared us righteous, perfect in His sight on account of Jesus. We are not merely forgiven, we are also righteous. And we are righteous not because of law-keeping, not because we've done many good works, not because we have cried endlessly about our sins, but by faith in Christ alone. Righteous through faith in Jesus. You see, this is the, this is the grievous error of the Roman church the church that I grew up in, that they deny that sinners are justified, declared righteous, the moment they trust in the Lord. They've abandoned the biblical gospel. They've abandoned their fidelity to God by teaching us instead that God infuses His grace in us and slowly makes us holy until we get to the point where in our experience we are sufficiently holy That God justifies us because we become holy in His sight. Rome teaches that we can never be confident and assured in this life that we are already justified in God's sight. In fact, they teach that it's a sin to believe that. The sin of presumption, as they would say. But the Bible teaches something far different, far more wonderful. The Bible teaches us that ungodly people are justified right now by faith. And if you have a hard time believing that, again, let me quote from Romans 4, 5, just a few verses later. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. That is it in some That great and comforting and awesome gospel message that Paul is proclaiming. God does not justify, declare righteous those who are already godly in their experience, but those who are ungodly. Recall the example of the man who would not even look up and was beating his breast. And Jesus says he left that day justified in God's sight. We who are ungodly, are pronounced righteous in Christ by faith. That is the biblical gospel. That is the historic Christian gospel. That is the Protestant and Reformed gospel. We do not work and seek God's grace incrementally so that one day we hope we'll be at perfect peace with God, maybe after suffering for a long time in a fictional place. No, we have perfect peace with God right now through faith, because God the Judge has declared us to be righteous in Christ. This is what the Bible teaches. This is the Gospel, the Christian good news. Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. John 5.24, which I referenced before, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word, and believes in him who sent me, has everlasting life, and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Some people don't like this truth because it's coming from an apostle and not Jesus himself. Well, I hope no one here is like that, but if there's any doubt about Paul's teaching being consistent with the teaching of Christ, memorize John 5.24, will you? They have everlasting life. They shall not come into judgment. They have passed from death into life when they believe. This is the magnificent comfort that we have in Christ, beloved. The amount of faith required for a sinner to be at peace with God is nowhere stated in Scripture except in this statement. We must have faith like a tiny mustard seed. Meaning it is simply by believing small and feeble as your faith may be, that you are given the righteousness of God. Faith is not work. Faith is not effort. Faith is not merit. None of that. It is the humble reception of what another person has done for you, done completely and done forever. Do you hear this? Faith is not a work. Faith is not a merit nor an effort on our part but rather the simple reception of what another person has done for us. And when I say it's not a work, I mean it's not a human effort. It is the work of God in our behalf done by His Holy Spirit in our hearts, done completely and done forever. It is the gift of the Holy Spirit that we believe. God places faith in our hearts, we open our eyes, and we believe. You say your faith isn't strong. You say you have doubts in your heart. Then I would encourage you to pray like this, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. You know, I, I was reading in Calvin's Institutes with the men of our church just a few weeks ago. And there's this wonderful little section where Paul's talking about the struggle Christians have with their sins. And he says in one sentence, something I had never read before, never noticed this before. He said, because Christians are simultaneously believers and unbelievers, let us therefore seek his grace. And I thought, that's interesting. We always think of Luther's statement, right? Simultaneously sinners and justified in God's sight, which is glorious truth. But to think we are simultaneously believers and unbelievers, and of course what Calvin's meaning is, our faith in this life is never perfect. Never will be. Our faith struggles. Our faith wanes at times. And the man who said, help me in my unbelief, speaks for all of us, doesn't he? We have all had our periods of doubt. But will you notice that Jesus did not turn away the prayer of that man? And he doesn't turn away the prayer of you, if you pray it today. It is not the excellence of your believing that saves you, beloved. It is not your effort at believing. It is the fact that you believe and the excellence of him who suffered for sin, the just for the unjust, to bring you to God. Let me say that again. It is not the excellence of your believing that saves you, but the excellence of him who suffered for sin to bring you to God. Many times we come to God with a weak faith and a fearful heart. We remember that we have gone a day or two without even thinking of the Lord, without praying. And we become fearful, as to, "Why am I so distant from the Lord?" We're very conscious of our sins. We are prone to anxiety and fearfulness. You read that throughout the letters, the pastoral letters, about the struggle of the Christian about with fear and anxiety. But we should be cheered by this great truth, just as the apostles cheered us in his word. Our Savior is very gentle.
1: Our Savior is
0: very mild to those who struggle with their faith. You say you have weak faith, then listen to what Isaiah says in chapter 42, verse 3 of his prophecy. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Isn't that great? Our Savior. It speaks of our Savior, the gentleness and the encouragement of our Savior. He is the source of that flame of faith in your heart. He will not despise it or seek to extinguish it. Instead, He will seek to fan it into flame through the means of grace. It's not the strength of your faith that saves you, but the omnipotent faith of Christ the perfection of His payment and His righteousness that makes you worthy to stand before God. However much you may struggle against sin, however much you may at times doubt His goodness to you, regardless the power to save and the righteousness you need to be at peace with God is provided to us by the Almighty Christ. You are not at peace with God because you feel yourself to be at peace. You are not at peace with God because you are struggling less today with sin than you used to. You are not at peace with God because you are walking more and more in obedience to the Lord. You are at peace with God because Christ has become your peace and has declared you righteous through faith in Him. Now, obviously, we, we seek to grow in our faith. We want to walk victoriously over sin to obey the Lord, to do good works, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, as Peter says. All of us are called to grow in those areas. But the encouragement to grow, this is key, the encouragement to grow in those virtues as a Christian comes from knowing that whether you are mature in your faith or you are one who struggles and is weak, regardless, everyone who believes in Christ is now justified in His sight and at peace with God. That is the ground by which you grow in those virtues. You do not grow in those virtues to attain to that peace, as Luther tried to do, as the Roman Catholic Church teaches. You grow in those virtues on the ground that you are already at peace with God. Christ's righteousness given to us by faith is the foundation of, the cornerstone of our relationship with God, and on that firm foundation we grow in grace. This is why Jesus said, my burden is light. My burden is easy. My yoke is, my yoke is light. <laughs> my burden is easy. This is why he said that. Right? There is a burden to the Christian life. There is an obligation to grow. There is an obligation to obey God's commandments. All these things are true. But the reason it's light and not burdensome is because we know we're already justified by faith in Christ. And that Christ constantly stands ready to assist us and to strengthen us through the proclamation of His Word, through the sacraments, through our fellowship time, through prayer on a personal and corporate level. He loves to do that. He wants to do that for us. And He does do that. He wants us all to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, and to grow in every Christian virtue and in our obedience to His commandments. The Bible says it is of first importance for us to know that Christ died for our sins. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. It's of first importance because Christ dying for our sins has established our peace with God. It is of first importance because unless Christ has died for our sins, rose from the dead, and ascended to glory, and is seated at God's right hand that we who are guilty of ungodliness and unrighteousness would never have confidence to approach the throne of God our judge. But now we do have such confidence even despite our sins, even despite our trembling hearts, even despite our anxieties, even despite our tendency to worry about everything under the sun because Christ died for us and we are now justified before him. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? This is the good news. This is the gospel. There is no other. Perhaps you've been raised a Christian, you've been a member of your church for years, and yet somehow you've missed that your only hope of escaping the wrath of God that comes on the whole world, the wrath against your sin, is to have personal faith in Christ your Lord. To you I say, come to Jesus. Believe in Him, and you will be saved. You can't be redeemed by doing good things, by sitting in a pew, by singing songs, by keeping God's commandments, by attending church faithfully every week, by confessing Reformed theology, by beating yourself up for your sins, because none of those activities can take away your guilt. None of those activities can make you righteous before a holy God. Only Christ can do that by faith. He has provided, He has freely given to us complete redemption and righteousness by His grace. He promises to save forever everyone who calls upon His name. So call on Him today. As Romans 10:9 and following declares, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That is the simplicity, that is the power, that is the complexity, that is the awesomeness of the Christian gospel. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And for those who do believe and are struggling and all of us struggle, to you I say, be comforted, be encouraged, be strengthened today, knowing that Jesus Christ and He alone is your righteousness. That is the wonderful truth that Paul says was testified by the Law and the Prophets that Jesus is our righteousness. We read it earlier, didn't we? In Jeremiah 1, verse twenty three verse six the prophet declares of the Messiah that this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Isaiah fifty four seventeen this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. Also in the New Testament, Second Corinthians five seventeen, for he, God, made him Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. This, beloved, is the righteousness of God which is revealed from faith to faith. This is the righteousness of God apart from the law that is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. It is by believing not by doing religious service, that this righteousness of God becomes ours. For the promise of it is to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is accounted for righteousness. The Atoning blood of Christ has washed away our guilt. The righteousness of God presents us before him as legally entitled to all the benefits of the Son, Glory to God, this is the amazing grace that we proclaim, this is the comforting grace, this is the strengthening grace, we are righteous in Him, hallelujah, let us rejoice in the Lord our righteousness today. Let us pray. Our God and Father, what can we say, what a wonderful and encouraging word that you have provided for us in this wonderful chapter of Romans. Life-giving words, indeed, perhaps the most important paragraph ever written that clarifies once and for all to us what the hope of the Christian is, that we who believe are now counted as righteous in Jesus Christ. Thank you for that promise and that hope, that foundation. Thank you for the yoke of the gospel, which is light, not burdensome. We thank you for the service, the opportunities for service we now have out of thankful hearts, out of gratefulness, even as our catechism teaches us. We thank you for all these things, the precious grace of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.